Three Circle Church and all of our campuses joining us right now. We have uh, Thomasville, we have Midtown Mobile, Daphne, and online. Man, great to have everybody with us. We're going to continue today our series on the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And just to bring us all up to speed, remember this is not what we call the Lord's Prayer because Jesus would have never prayed the Lord's Prayer. He gave us the Lord's Prayer to pray because Jesus would never ask his Father to forgive him, and yet he teaches us to do so. So this is a different prayer. This is a prayer between Jesus and his Father. It's the only one, really, that he allowed the disciples to hear and record that he ever fully prayed. And this is important. I'll remind you that that some of it is so big, so uh, majestic, it's hard for our minds to understand because we are finite creatures listening to an infinite conversation between the infinite Son and the infinite Father. So keep all of that in mind as we listen to this prayer. But God wanted you to hear this prayer. He wanted you to hear it. He wanted you to learn these things about him. So as we stand in awe of the prayer, we ultimately stand in awe of Jesus. And we go, this is the God-man. This is 100% God, 100% man. We see all of those things happening here in this prayer. And remember the context. They had just had the Lord's Supper, uh, the Last Supper, where Jesus had washed their feet. He dismisses Judas. Now there's 11, not 12. All of that happened. And then they leave that room, and they're headed to the Garden of Gethsemane in the dark of night. And Jesus stops and begins to pray. And John was a teenager. He's the one that writes about the high priestly prayer. And he was a teenager when he heard it. Uh, But he was about 70 years old when he wrote his gospel. And the, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit brought every word of that prayer back to John so he could write it down. But now John was standing there when Jesus prayed that prayer. He was watching Jesus pray it. He could still at 70 years old feel and hear that night in his mind. He could still see Jesus' expression as he looked to heaven and they all realized he's praying and we get to listen to him pray. He could remember how he felt in that moment. And so we get to get in on that. Isn't that cool? Isn't that awesome that the scriptures give us this opportunity? And so we have looked at different sections. What we did is we took the prayer and we broke it into some uh, basically sections based on the subject matter of what Jesus was talking about. We have looked at Jesus as our high priest We've looked at Jesus as our mediator. Aren't you glad that Jesus is representing you before the Father? Right? That's good news. Last time I checked, uh, the death rate for humans is 100%. Nobody's getting out of this thing alive, just so you know. So you're going to stand before a holy God one day, and when you do, you are not qualified to represent yourself before that holy God. You need representation. And good news is all believers will be represented by Jesus before the Father. That is really good news for us today. And you can rest in that. When we say rest in the gospel, that's what that means. I can rest in that truth. So today we're going to look at another section of the prayer. We go to John 17, 20 to 23. He's been praying, and here is another section of the prayer. So we go to the Word of God now. It says, I do not ask. So Jesus is praying. He says, I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. And Jesus, please help us to understand by the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit your word today. And in, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. 
All right, let's just dive into this prayer. So the first line tells us something that I promised you I would show you in this series. I told you that there was going to be a moment where I showed you, you, in the Bible. Now, I don't like when people read themselves into the Bible. We do it too much in modern Christianity. We'll look at the story of David and Goliath, and we're like, now all of us are David, and we're all killing the giant. And I tend to believe that we would all be up in the tent scared of Goliath, just like the rest of the Israelites, okay? So I don't like reading people into the Scriptures, but here's one that's legit. You are here. I'm about to show you, you, in the Bible. And here it is, first line. Jesus says, I'm not praying only for these. Talking about the 11. Look at the next line. I'm praying for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you. Jesus just mentioned you. Jesus is praying for you, and he's praying for me. And this tells us something. If you wonder, what was Jesus thinking about? As the horrors of the crucifixion and the atonement were right around the corner. Like he knows what's coming. Remember, he's sovereign. He knows what's coming. What's he thinking about in that moment? He's thinking about us. That's what he's thinking about. Now, if I could just give you some good news for a moment. You and I have no idea how much we are loved. You have no idea. You parents in the room, you know what this is like. You love your kids so much. We have no idea. See, Jesus was thinking about us. He was praying for us in the final moments before the cross. When I look at my kids, I think they have no idea how much I love them. They have no idea how much my wife loves them. They have no idea what we would sacrifice, what we do sacrifice. They just don't get how much they mean to us. And I'm convinced that we as Christians lack an element of joy in our lives because we just don't realize, and frankly, we rarely think about just how much we are loved by God. My friends... Be encouraged today. In your weaknesses and all of your failures and all of your shortcomings, you are loved by God so much that you can't even imagine how much he loves you. And that's really good news today. And this is an example. Jesus was thinking about you and could see you before you were born. He is sovereign. And again, what we see here is his love for us. He's praying for us. Isn't that good? Like, it'd be great. I'm I'm glad when my friends say, hey, I've been praying for you or... But it's really good to know that Jesus is praying for me. No offense. I appreciate you praying for me too, but man, to know that Jesus is praying for us? Now, remember that whenever we see something in the Bible that is about God, that means it's also about Jesus because Jesus is God. Do you all remember the Plato illustration I gave you? All right, how many of you are here for the Plato illustration? Anybody? Okay, let me give it to you for the rest of you guys. So we all know what Plato's like. Some of y'all stuck it up your nose when you were kids. Well, maybe that was just me. But anyway, that's a whole other story. But it's the sin nature. It comes out in all of us, right? Little boys. Anyway, so uh, let's say you had a ball of Play-Doh, okay? Every bit of that is Play-Doh, and it's all together. Now, if I took a little piece of it, and I didn't separate it, but I just pulled out a little knob here and a second knob here, And a third knob here, I've got Play-Doh that's never been separated. Now, they are clearly three different knobs coming off of the Play-Doh, right? You got that in your mind? But they never separated. They share something. The three knobs are all what? Play-Doh. They never stop being Play-Doh. So you can say that this knob is Play-Doh and that knob is Play-Doh. And anything that's true of this knob is also true of that knob because they share the same essence, which is Play-Doh. Now, this is the only time you'll see Play-Doh used to do eternal things, right? 
So in the Bible, when it speaks of Jesus is displaying this here. So I'm about to read you a verse in the Old Testament that now we see Jesus doing because Jesus is God. 2 Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. That is true of Jesus. When it says God, it's talking about Jesus. It's talking about the Spirit. It's talking about the Father. Now, Depending on how you grew up, I grew up in a great church that loved Jesus, but there were things that weren't quite where they needed to be theologically. And one of the things I grew up believing in the religion that I was immersed in at times was that God was indeed looking throughout the earth and had his eyes on me, waiting to catch me mess up so that he could smack me with an eternal hammer. That's what religion will teach you. I was taught word for word in a Sunday school class once by a well-meaning Sunday school teacher that if I or any Christian was hammering a nail and you accidentally missed the nail and hit your hand and you said a word you should not say and the rapture took place in that moment, you would be left behind. (laughs) Sunday school teacher taught me that. So that'll, that'll strike the fear in you, man. And so then I'm like, oh my goodness. So every time I thought anything bad, you know, in middle school, I mean, you know, if I, if I got mad in a sport and I thought, I thought, oh man. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm not okay. If I got mad at a friend, if I said something I shouldn't say, if I think something I shouldn't think, you know, if I think a girl's pretty, seventh grade, oh, no, I'm not going to make it. Please don't come now, oh, Lord. Right? What a weak gospel. Aren't you thankful that the gospel's stronger than that? So I love this because what we're getting in the high priestly prayer is Jesus praying for us. He's not saying, you make sure they stay in line. He's saying, I love them. He knew we were going to mess up. But instead, the Bible says that our God looks all the time into our lives for ways to strengthen us and help us and encourage us and give us victory in our lives and full joy and life abundantly. Now, that is not religion. That's the gospel. And that's what brings us joy when we see Jesus through the eyes of Scripture rather than religion. Jesus as the eternal son could see future believers. He's displaying that here. He he can see. So remember, he is fully human. He's bound by space and time in his humanity. And he added that to his nature. He's one person, two natures. He has a full human nature and a full divine nature. But the eternal son is in full operation here. And in his deity, he could see us because he can see outside of time. If your brain's hurting right now, welcome to our worship service today. That's worship. He's big, he's awesome, he's mighty. He could see us and he prays for us. Jesus displayed both his divinity and his humanity often while he was on the earth. Let me give you another example and I love it because in this verse it shows us again his love for us and that he prays for believers. So Jesus is at the Last Supper, right? He's at the Last Supper in a human body. He's really there. He's not just floating around. He's a real human and he's also fully God. And at the Last Supper, Peter who's always running his mouth, right? Is saying things like, I'll go to the, I'll die for you. Like, I'll never leave you. And here's what Jesus said to him in Luke 22. He said, Simon, Simon, notice he doesn't call him Peter. You know, Simon was his original name. Peter was the name Jesus gave him, signifying the new nature. But guess who has shown back up that night, just like it does for you and I? Old Peter, and that's Simon. So Jesus looks at him, and he doesn't call him Peter, Cephas, the rock. He says, Simon. He's talking to who he is right now, who he's acting like. Simon, Simon, behold, watch this. So he's saying, Simon, Simon, human, human, 
now divinity is speaking, Satan, oh, we're talking about other things now, has demanded to have you. Now, why would Jesus know that? Because he's God. Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Watch this. But I have prayed for you, humanity. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But watch this in the same breath. But since Jesus is sovereign and can see through time, since he's divine, he also knows that while he prays for Peter to not fail, his foreknowledge and sovereignty makes it so that he knows he will fail. He already knows. So in the next line, he says, And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. He can see the future. He's saying, Peter, here's what I know. I don't want you to fail, but you're going to fail. I'm praying for you through your failure. And when you've turned again, like he's, he, do you hear the timelessness of it? He already sees that he's going to. And you're going to turn again. You're coming back. And when you come back, you're going to strengthen your brothers. And now my brain's hurting. Now, I know most of you are far more advanced than I am mentally. But I bet yours is hurting a little bit too. And we just stand back in awe of Jesus. Jesus, who knows all things, is also praying for us and cares for us. There's great mystery, but just incredible, right? Like how many of you are Bible nerds enough like I am to go, that's just awesome. To look at that and go, wow, what I'm seeing happen here. So this conversation between Jesus and Peter demonstrated exactly what the high priestly prayer does. His deity and his humanity at the same time. He's fully human. He's fully God. He's the God man forever and ever he will be. And we are grateful for it. Now, let's get to the subject matter that's at hand because every line of this prayer continues to show us the humanity and deity of Jesus. But now he gets into a unique subject matter that we're going to look at today, and it is the unity of the church. Jesus is praying for something specifically here, and it's the unity of the church. He wants the church to be unified. In fact, three or four times, Jesus here says, I want them to be one just like we are one. Talking about the Father and the Spirit. Jesus is saying, I want them to unify. Notice he tells you why. He says the world is going to know who God is. They're going to be drawn to the power of God when they see the unity of the church. He says that several times. So that the world may know that you sent me. What is evidence that Jesus is real and God is powerful? When a group of people like churches can be unified, that is a display of great power. And Jesus is praying for that. Let's dive into that truth. First of all, you need to make clear on this that Jesus prayed for our unity. Because I'm going to tell you in just a moment what he did not pray for. So first of all, let's be clear what he is praying for. He is asking for our unity, that we be one. Let me tell you what he did not pray for. Jesus did not pray for uniformity. And they are different. And it is very important that you understand that they are different. And I hope to help you understand today just how different the two are. And I want to show you that unity is harder than uniformity, and unity is superior to uniformity, and that God never called us to uniformity, but he absolutely has called us to unity. Let me tell you the difference in uniformity and unity, and I'll use an incredible athlete. I love analogies, and here's a sports analogy for you. Odell Beckham Jr. How many have ever heard of him? If you're not a sports fan, maybe not, but he's this incredible wide receiver. When he was at LSU, I remember thinking, that guy is really good. He makes the craziest catches you've ever seen. Well, he was drafted by the New York Giants. And here is Odell Beckham Jr. as a New York Giant. Now, let me tell you about this picture. Odell is in uniformity here, right? 
He has the uniform. He can't wear another uniform. He has to look like that every time he hits the field. There are strenuous rules. He is under contract. He's getting paid a billion dollars, right, to be on that field in that uniform. That's called uniformity. But if you know anything about sports and you know the news, you know that he caused lots of trouble in the locker room, that he never wanted to be on that team. It didn't take him long. It was all about him. He caused lots of trouble. And eventually, Odell Beckham, he was never in unity with his team. He only had uniformity. That's why God never wanted uniformity, wanted unity. So he demanded a trade. And he got traded to the Browns. And then he became a Brown. And you think, oh, it'll be good now. And he was there for a year and a half, two years, tops. And it turns out, like a few weeks ago, one of the big things happening in the sports world is Odell, surprise, surprise, he demanded another trade. And the new place he's going now, he decided, is he's going to the Rams. He was never in unity with the Browns. He was always just in uniformity. Because unity takes way more work. Uniformity, put the uniform on, play the part, play the rules. He was never with that team. And in fact, I have a little hunch. And it's just me using like logic. I got a feeling in a few months, he's not going to want to be a Ram either. You want to know why? Because he's doing uniformity. He's not doing unity. Do you see the difference? Now, hey, you can go to church and not be in unity with others. You can be in a marriage and have uniformity but not unity. You can be in friendships where it looks uniform but it's not unified. This happens all the time. And I want to make clear Jesus did not pray for nor does he call us to uniformity. He calls the church to unity. Listen to Philippians. You may wonder, well, did the the apostles continue to teach this? Absolutely. In Philippians, Paul writes, Complete my joy. So if you want to know what would complete the joy of this apostle while he's in prison, he says, and and, and in this, as Paul normally does, Paul would normally theologically lay out what something really is. What is Christian unity then? If it's that important, we need to define it. Well, Paul does. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. Let's talk about those elements because now we have elements to deal with here. We have parts of what Christian unity looks like. And the first thing he lists here is unity of mind. So one thing about unity is it has to be unity of mind. Not uniformity, unity of mind. And this means we seek to unify around truth. This is why, listen, the church has always been countercultural. The church has always been hard to deal with for cultures and governments from its very inception because it never has played by the normal rules of humanity. Because humanity normally breaks off into races or breaks off into socioeconomics or breaks off into something and then gets it uniform. We've got to be uniform. We're all going to be like this. And the church has never played by that set of rules from the very beginning. That's why it was so hard for the Romans to deal with because in these little churches that were popping up, there'd be people from different races and there'd be people from all the socioeconomic backgrounds and there'd be Romans hanging out with Greeks and Greeks hanging out with Jews and it just didn't make sense. You can't wrap your mind around that. And, and, but guess what? It kept exploding. That's why Jesus said it will demonstrate to the world the power of God if this can happen. It's just so impossible for it to happen otherwise that it says, oh my goodness, there is evidence that there is a living God. When these people can pull this off, unity of mind means that we come together over truth. So what do we come together here at Three Circle? We say it all the time. The main thing is Jesus. The main thing is what do we believe about God? So that is why at Three Circle there are people with Methodist backgrounds and Presbyterian backgrounds, Baptist backgrounds, right? 
I told you about these streams before. We come together and we have all these different streams. I got several streams flowing into me. I grew up in an Assembly of God church and I went to a Baptist college and I've been heavily influenced and even mentored by several Presbyterians. So I've got a lot of, a lot of streams flowing into me. And it's funny because I, because I know all those streams so well, it is interesting. Like uh, Baptists tend to think that the Pentecostals may be a little crazy. Like y'all get a little crazy, man. Y'all are just into emotion. That's all the Baptists think. And, and, and so the Pentecostals think there's no way the Baptists and Presbyterians can even be saved. <laughs> they never cry. They never raise their hands. They never get excited. Something's wrong with these people. The Presbyterians who are so intellectual and all about the word, they look over there and they're like, y'all are just stupid. That's what it is. Y'all don't know the word enough and y'all aren't very smart. And y'all are anti-intellectual, right? And the Baptists look at both of them because the Baptists are all about doing stuff, like mission and get it done. And they look at them and they go, y'all are lazy. Y'all just want to sit around and read. And y'all just want to sit around and sing and dance and cry and stuff. You don't get anything done. We're going to go reach the world while y'all study and y'all sing. <laughs> and you know what? Jesus said, hey, you guys are all majoring on minors here. So we go to, now are there things that can break unity? Yes, and the Bible's clear about it. The New Testament's clear about it. There's some things that for us to be unified as a church, we need to agree on. But they're not secondary and third level things. We can be honest about those things and have disagreements on them. You may believe that Jesus is going to return after the tribulation. Some of you may believe he's going to come in the middle of it, and some of you may believe he's going to come in the beginning. I have what I call the pan theory. I think in the end it's all going to pan out and be just fine, see? <laughs> It's a preacher joke. It's good, isn't it? Isn't that good? That's not good. I know it's not. But you know what? Created a nice break in the sermon there. See, we've got a major on the major. So at Three Circle, we say it's the gospel. It's about Jesus. And that is why we can all come to the same table and go, yes, we are unified. Even though, you know what? There are some little things that we would all have maybe even strong opinions on. We strive for unity together in the majors. If the majors come apart, then now we got a problem. We will have to break unity. That's clear in the scriptures. But we need to major on the majors. That's called unity of mind. That's what Paul's saying here. Even in those New Testament churches, there are all kinds of little opinions. But if they could come together over Jesus and the gospel and the Trinity and the mission of the church, if they could come together over those things, now we could work together. Secondly, unity of love, meaning we act in love and define love biblically. It's important we understand this. We have unity of love, not uniformity. It means that in the church, we don't buy into the system of the world. You know what the system of the world is right now? It's called cancel culture. Now, what we have is we have a situation right now. It's just a different name. It's always been around where we say, hey, if you're not in uniformity, and by the way, don't think only one side of the political spectrum is doing this. It's on either side, okay? We'll go, if you don't stay uniform with us, then you're out. If you say anything that makes us think you're not a part of the box we put you in, if you say anything, we just cancel you. It's a major thing. We just destroy you, destroy your reputation, destroy everything. It's happening all the time on both sides. And I'll tell you, in my own life, like last year, uh, I put out a thing and I said, hey, after, uh, after the presidential race, I said, I am praying for President Biden. And I didn't realize that I had dro dropped a, a Hiroshima-sized nuclear bomb. If I showed you some emails from Christians that I got on that, it'd blow your mind. Okay? 
And you know what happened? A lot of, I, I stepped out of uniformity. And that is a no-no, right? Oh, it's happened on the other side too because when Trump was president, if I, because I think you just got to tell the truth. And when Trump would do something good, I would put out there, hey, I agree with this and I'm praying for this and I appreciate the president doing this, Hiroshima again. And then I would get it from the other side. You know what you are? You're a right-wing conservative and you don't love people. And then when I said I'm praying for Biden, I got, you know what you are? You're a liberal. You're a liberal and you want everybody to take your guns. Yeah. See, uniformity. Uniformity is not fun, man. But unity is a dip. Don't act like y'all don't know what I'm talking about. So Christians, we don't act like that. You know what we do? We go, hey, before I cancel you, I love you. I can't cancel you because you're a human being. So we act in love and we work hard and we go, yeah, we got some disagreements. But we are going to start with we love each other. And if you're a believer, oh, man, I'm real committed to loving you well and figuring out where you're coming from and listening to you and caring for you before I go hit the cancel button. That's what Christianity should look like. Now, let me warn you, uniformity is easier. It's kind of like last night. I came home, and we'd been at soccer games all day, and I was hungry, and I walked in, and there were healthy options. There were veggies. There were healthy options for me. There was whole grain bread and and organic peanut butter. There were things I could have done that were healthy, but I went to Dollar General, which is close to my house, because we needed some cereal, and I bought a box of honeycombs. Anybody ever had them? And, and let me tell you, it's so easy. You just pour it in. It's like it, you, I could have put an IV of sugar just straight in. That's all it was. And, and, and that's what it is. It's easy. It's like just dumping it. Oh, man. Feels good for five minutes, tastes good, and then you feel awful because you realize you just ate a bunch of sugar. But that's what I did. It's basically dessert in a bowl because it's easy. Let me tell you what. Easiest thing in the world for you right now in this world is for you to buy into this culture. It's easy to cancel people. That's the easy thing to do. The easy thing is just jump on Facebook and fire off whatever you want to say. Blast people. That's the easy thing. And that's why Jesus said, not the church. That's why 1 John says, do not buy into the system of this world, any of it. We play by a different set of rules. And we don't take the easy way. We take the hard way where we love each other and we strive and fight for unity, church. Unity. That's what we're looking at here. Unity of one accord means we operate together rather than separately. That's what one accord means. That is is not a sedan for your family. It's a different idea here. I got more where that came from, guys. This is when the church gets to work together in in our differences. When there are differences, we get to work together. This is why at Three Circle, our campuses all look so different. They look different. How in the world can a church in Fairhope and Daphne and Midtown Mobile and Thomasville all work? How does that work? And yet it does. Why? I'll tell you this. It's not easy. It'd be a lot easier for Three Circle, like some churches do, to act like McDonald's, where we just put different stores all over the place and they look exactly the same. That'd be the cleanest, easiest way. But I don't believe that's what God's called us to do. We don't want uniformity. We want unity, right? That's what McDonald's does. Same thing everywhere. You go everywhere. It's the same Whopper. No, it's a different one. It's the same uh, quarter pounder. It's the same fries. It's the same broken ice cream machine everywhere you go, right? 
But if you were to leave this church and go to Daphne for their next gathering, it'd feel different. Our unity is around other things, but boy, they look different. You go over to Midtown Mobile, it looks different, sounds different. You go up to Thomasville, totally different. And yet we're unified. This is what the church looks like, and we work together. Now, let me tell you something else. Unity is a constant pursuit rather than an achieved goal. Unity is a constant pursuit rather than an achieved goal. We're not going to wake up one day and go, hey, three circle, we don't have to work on the unity thing anymore. We actually got there. No, no, because unity, you're con- it's like vacuuming and sweeping the floor in your house. It's good for about two minutes until someone walks across the floor and suddenly it's not clean anymore. And so unity takes work and it takes maintenance and it takes, it takes patience, commitment to stay unified. This is why in Ephesians 4.13, Paul writes, until we all attain, watch what he connects, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When is that going to happen? When we die. What he's saying is we'll be striving for this forever. It is, a, it is an aspirational pursuit that we have. We'll always be going after it. It's hard. Every presidential election is going to get a little wild. We've got to pray. We've got to stay unified so the world can go, wow, even in the middle of all this turmoil, they're unified. That's hard. Now, let me give you a few of the characteristics that will help, help you today. And you'll see why Jesus wanted it so much for us. Unity can be achieved while in the presence of differences. You don't, there can be lots of differences and still be unified. We're proving that at Three Circle Church. If I were to ask all of you several questions about your theology, about several things, you'd go, yeah, this is different. I believe this, I believe this, but we come together around these major things. But let me tell you something about uniformity. It allows no differences. That's where the cancel culture comes in, on both sides. It allows no differences. We can't discuss anymore. We can't, there's no differences in uniformity. It does not allow it. That's why Jesus never, the church couldn't exist if we didn't have some differences. By the way, I'm glad for some of the differences. I learned from some of your differences. We help each other. Iron sharpens iron. Here's another one. Uniformity is clean, but unity is messy. We see that in small groups. It'd be way easier if we just said, okay, all the white people who make $80,000 or above can be in this group. I'm going to take all of the African-American people and put them in this group. And we're going to take any other races we have. So we're going to build our small groups around race, socioeconomics. And then, you know, no Auburn fans, Alabama fans. We're going to separate those out. If you're an outdoorsy person, we're putting you in a group. If you're more artsy, we're going to put them in groups. We want this thing clean. That's uniformity. And you know what else that is? Weird. You know what else it is? Boring. Right? Well, we don't do that. We just go, you know what? Get in there and figure it out. That's what Jesus said for us to do. It's messy. Of course it's messy. Religion demands uniformity, but the gospel empowers unity. You see the difference? Religion has always been about uniformity. That's why the Pharisees got so mad at Jesus. He didn't wear their uniform. Jesus came along, and he did stuff that they didn't like. They threw a fit one day because his disciples would not wash their hands before they eat. So they walk up. They're all hanging out. Peter's over there eating a sandwich, you know. Dirt all over his hands. Of course, he's a fisherman from Galilee. He's not pristine like the Pharisees. The Pharisees jump all over Jesus. You let them do this? 
Do you not know they're breaking the law? And, And that was not a law, by the way. That was actually not in the Mosaic law. It was one of their traditions. So Jesus looks at them, and and I'm sure Peter, because Peter and those guys were raised to respect the Pharisees. So they would have assumed, oh man, I missed something in the Mosaic law. I'm sure Peter's like mid-bite on his sandwich, like, oh no, what have I done? And then Jesus looks at them and says, actually, no, that's not a law. That's just one of your traditions. And Peter's like, oh, You know how Peter is. The others would have been polite, not Peter. I bet Peter's like, let me just get another bite. (laughs) Right? Because Jesus is saying, no, 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 we're not going to play the uniformity game. We're going to have unity around things that matter. So religion has always demanded uniformity. We're not a religious church. We're a gospel church. It empowers unity. It says, you know what? It's okay for us to have lots of differences and unify around those things that matter the most. That's a beautiful thing. Let me tell you one last thing that will help you understand the superiority of unity. And and just go with me here. You know what cults do? Cults enforce uniformity. Pour you a glass of Kool-Aid if you know what I mean. That's what cults do. You know what real churches do? We seek unity. When you walk in three circle, we don't tell you, hey, Here's what you need to listen to now. Here's how you need to dress. Here's how you need to act. Here's places to go and not to go. Here's your rule sheet on how to be a part of three-circle church. No, we don't do that. We don't even tell you you have to put a bumper sticker on your car. We ask nicely, please. (laughs) But cults enforce uniformity. We're not a cult. We're a church. That's why Galatians 3.28, Paul writes, he says, look, there's neither... Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male, no female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul is not saying that there's no more Jews and no more Greeks and no more females and no more males. No, of course not. If you look at the rest of his writings, he teaches you how to be all of those things. He's saying with all of those differences, we become unified in Christ. We're not uniformed, we're unified. And to give you one last way to understand what Jesus is saying today, I want to give you an illustration, help you understand. All right, there's two porcupines. And they're freezing to death. It is a freezing cold day and night. If these two porcupines do not come together to warm one another up, they will die. They need to unify, but it's going to hurt. That's Christian unity. Sometimes it's painful, sometimes it's messy. We got to come together. We've got to unify for the power of the gospel, for the flourishing of the church, to shine the light, and for us to have true joy. We're going to have to come together. It's going to hurt. It's going to be worth it. Amen, church? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word, how it comes alive in our hearts and our minds. Help us today to live.